Hi, listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, your executive director. Welcome to this, a special series of conversations that I had with the four monk debaters who appeared on our main stage debate June 22nd in Toronto to weigh in on the motion, be it resolved, AI research and development poses an existential threat. This was a unique opportunity to have before us four people who have thought deep and long about AI, some of whom have been involved in its development at a level that is truly world-leading. These interviews were conducted again before the debate, and they allowed me, as your executive director, to go a bit deeper with each of our debaters, probe their key analysis, pro and con, AI as an existential risk. The first voice up that you'll hear is Yan LeCun. He is the vice president and chief AI scientist for Meta, the parent company of Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and a world leader in VR. He's responsible for innovating AI applications across Meta's 3 billion daily users. He's also a winner of the 2018 Turing Award for his foundational scientific contributions to machine learning. The Turing Award is kind of like a, a mini Nobel for computer sciences. This is a guy you want to listen to. He's thought deep about AI, he's worked on it, and he is one of its big innovators today. The next voice you'll hear is mine in conversation with Yan LeCun. Yan LeCun, welcome. Thanks for having me. I want to begin our conversation. Uh, if you could give our listeners a sense of the key argument that you want to make tonight, if there's one point that you want audience members to leave with impressed upon their minds as we debate this motion, be it resolved, AI research and development poses an existential risk. What is that thing? The main point I will, um, I will try to convince the audience of is the fact that this is just another engineering problem and making AI systems safe is similar to making turbojet safe. And we, at least some of us, may have difficulties imagining how we can make AI systems safe today because we have not invented the architecture for AI systems that can be capable of human-level AI. So how can we make it safe if we haven't invented it yet? It's like asking for turbojets to be safe in 1930. Is there a chicken and egg problem here? Um, as this technology develops, um, I sense from your writings and public comments that you might be concerned if there was something that emerged which was an AGI, you know, a, a kind of general intelligence, that might make you more worried about potential existential risks. How do we get to that point without crossing over it, without the controls that we need to avoid that risk? Okay, so there's a fallacy behind the statement, which is that AGI is not going to just emerge. For this to exist, we'll have to build it, and we have to uh, build it really explicitly for it to, to have superior intelligence. So this is not something that is going to happen, and we have to just accept. We are building it. We have agency in building it. And of course, we can build it to be safe. If it turns out we can't build it to be safe, we're just not going to build it. Um, and it's not going to be an event. Uh, it's not going to be like we're going to turn on a machine one day and it's going to be super intelligent and then uh, go way beyond human intelligence instantly. Um, that's, you know, science fiction. 
what what's going to happen is that we're going to make systems that have similar capabilities but are considerably less intelligent than humans, and they're going to be in the sandbox in the computer where we can, you know we can run the program or turn it off and then you know progressively uh, uh, build in such a way that you know it can get uh, smarter and smarter. So this, it's fascinating to have this conversation with you because as a layperson, there's a perception that this technology is somehow emergent, that it, it has the ability to iterate and reiterate itself somehow independently of us. So therefore, something like AGI could be a phenomenon that could emerge inherently from the system. You're telling me that that is sci-fi and I should be leaving that on a bookshelf at home. Exactly. You know, it, it, it's it's good sci-fi, perhaps, uh, but but it's it's not the way the way things work in engineering. It's hard enough to get you know current top AI system to run without crashing for an hour. So it's not like they're going to take over the world and replicate themselves and become more and more intelligent. At least not anytime soon. And then when we build systems that have the potential capability of being having superhuman intelligence they will not have the type of drives that humans have. So humans have a drive to interact with other humans, perhaps have relationships of dominance or submission because we are a social species with a hierarchical organization. Evolution built us this way. Uh, same as baboon and chimpanzees. Not the same as orangutan. Orangutans don't have any desire to dominate anybody. Um, so, you know, we're going to build machines to be subservient to us and have no desire to, for domination whatsoever. Another argument we're going to hear in this debate, no doubt, is that these machines, uh, these intelligences, however you want to characterize that, could empower bad actors. So there are lots of uh, people in the world who want to do horrible things, and having really helpful, potentially powerful intelligences to allow them to further their goals creates an existential risk. It diffuses this power out to actors who may have interests which are very antithetical to yours and mine. Is that a legitimate concern? It's been a legitimate concern since the invention of uh, technology, probably the first time a proto-human um, you know, took a piece of bone in their hand or something. You know, This is a famous scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, so, yeah, sure, that's a danger, but uh, we've had uh, countermeasures for, for such bad actors uh, since day one. And then it's a question of if the bad actors have powerful AI, the uh, good people who are considerably more numerous and well-funded will have more powerful AI. Um, so an interesting thing to, to know at the moment is that uh, the best way, for example, uh, on the internet, social media, for example, to take down dangerous content, uh, violent content, terrorist propaganda, hate speech, this kind of stuff, makes massive use of AI. In that case, AI is the solution, it's not the problem. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, if we think about uh, where we're at now and how quickly it seems, again, to a layperson that this technology has evolved, you've been at the coalface, I know, for you know a couple of decades now working on this. So I want your perception, have you been surprised over the last 18 to 24 months at the sophistication of the systems that we're now seeing, like ChatGPT4? Um, to what extent do you feel that you know, we're, we're going to plateau in a place that has AIs of the, the current power that we're seeing? 
uh, I guess what I'm trying to get a sense from you, Jan, with all your knowledge and expertise is, are we going to see a hockey stick, you know, a, a, a graph kind of ramping up and taking off into the future? Or should we be maybe a little more modest uh, and less uh, hyped about these technologies and their inherent power? Well, we're going to see what we've seen so far in technology and computer technology, which is, you know, continuous uh, exponential growth until we reach the, li the limits, uh, physical limits, for example, of fabrication technology, in which case the exponential starts leveling off and turns itself into a sigmoid. Um, and every process in the real world, even if it initially looks like an exponential, eventually saturates. So when is that going to happen? I don't know. Um, it seems to be going on for longer than we expected initially. Um, that said, in terms of, I can understand why the public has been surprised by some of the progress, because to the public, you, you have singular events of a you know, product be, you know, being made available. Uh, for people like us in the, in the research, those surprises are considerably less uh, prominent, if you want, and, and uh, they happened two or three years ago. Uh, we've seen enormous progress in natural language understanding uh, due to transformer architectures, particular type of neural nets, self-supervised learning, uh, just the basic idea of uh, training a system to predict the next word, which is really what those dialogue systems do at the moment, and then the, the fine-tuning to get them to, uh, uh, to answer questions. The, you know, there's been systems of this type for a long time, um, so it's, it's a bit of a continuous uh, uh, progress and frankly not particularly surprising for us from the conceptual point of view. Even if in practice, the, the size of, of them and the, when we you know, tra train them to be very large, uh, there are properties that are somewhat unexpected, but not entirely surprising. So that kind of leads me to a, a, a line of questioning that will emerge, no doubt, in this debate about the future. And again, it's very hard, shouldn't predict the future, but would there be things... You should, you should build a future. Ex let's build it. But if you were building that future and you... What things would you have to see for you to become concerned that the technology was doing something that, for instance, your, your fellow uh, Turing Award winner, Jeffrey Hinton, seems to see now? He seems to see something going on now which has made him concerned enough to speak out in a very, very public way about the need for immediate restrictions on research and development. What would you need to see to become concerned? So Jeff is an old friend. Uh, I worked with him in Toronto, actually, many years ago in the late 80s. And uh, I think he went through some sort of epiphany about two or three months ago where he realized that the progress uh, was faster than he thought and, and human-level intelligence was closer than he thought. He, he thought it might be 50 or 100 years in the future, and now he thinks it's maybe 20 years or something like that. So all of a sudden, he started thinking about the, the consequences that he wasn't worried about before. But some of us have been thinking about this for a long time and uh, you know, don't have the same opinion as to whether the, the desire for, for dominance or, or the fact that if the system is intelligent, necessarily it will, it will dominate. Like, I do not believe in this concept at all. Um, I, I think it's not even true of humans. Um, it's not the smartest among us that want to be the leaders, generally. We have plenty of examples in the international political scene. Uh, so um, I disagree with him. I've disagreed with him on a number of different things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I also disagree with uh, 
my friend Yosha Benjo, who is more concerned about sort of more immediate threats really than uh, super intelligence system taking over the world. Mm -hmm. We'll leave that to Max Tegmark, uh, your other debating uh, opponent tonight. Um, do you? It sounds, talking to you, Jan, as a scientist, that you have a lot of confidence that your fellow scientists are going to develop this technology responsibly. There are, though, other episodes in the development of dual-use technologies where scientists want to do things. They they want to innovate, they want to discover, and that often leads to doing something maybe when you're not supposed to do it. There's all kinds of interesting examples from the Manhattan Project where they took, in some ways, incredible risks. Luckily, they didn't lead to the consequences that they thought, but there were small probabilities, at least they thought there were small probabilities, that there could be existential risks for the early experiments on the atomic bomb. To what extent do you feel the scientific community going forward is going to be responsible about existential threats. Is there a danger here that we just completely rule them out, we say that it's not part of this technology, and therefore we're not thinking about it as we're developing the technology? I mean, obviously we have to develop technology in ways that makes it safe. And in fact, a good part of the effort in developing technologies that, that is deployed is to actually make it safe. I was using the example of turbojets before. Uh, it, it, enormous amount of resources has been put into making turbojets incred incredibly safe and reliable, which is why we can, you know, fly in, in uh, complete peace of mind. So um, I think it's going to be the same. Uh, it's going to be a difficult, arduous engineering uh, project to make uh, machines that are helpful. If they are dangerous, people will not want them. And so there is no incentive to build dangerous machines, except if you are, you know, uh, have bad intentions, but uh, but this is not going to happen by 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 default just because we we are careless or anything like that, right? We we uh, uh, generally want to develop things for the benefit of humanity, and we, if we realize it doesn't go that way, we just stop. So, for example, let me take a very simple example. In the 1950s, uh, people seriously thought about possibly building nuclear-powered cars and nuclear-powered rockets. There was actually a big project funded by the US government for that uh, called Project Orion. Um, the, the promises of this were incredible, uh, but all those projects were stopped because it's just too dangerous to, to have uh, nuclear energy going, going around everywhere, um, uh, both for radiation risk, but also for you know, various proliferation uh, questions. So it never happened. Uh, I, you, there's many examples of this, of uh, technologies that were uh, initially promising and basically were not deployed because of uh, safety reasons. So perhaps this is what will happen with AI. I'm pretty confident um, this, is, this is not the way it's going to happen, that there will be a way to make it safe. In fact, I'll talk about this, how, how you can do that. Great. Great. Final question. Which of any of your opponent's hypothetical arguments would you give the most credence to? Is there one that you think, yeah, that is something that makes me think again or think twice, or in the middle of the night I wake up and I reach for a pen and a paper when this issue comes to mind? Well, I mean, certainly the, the question of how you design AI for, for safety is one that I've been giving a lot of thought about and, and in fact came to a potential solution, which you know, we haven't built, so we don't know if it, uh, if it works. Um, but certainly if you, if you take sort of current uh, AI systems, such as the, the ChatGPTs of the, of the world, autoregressive LLMs, 
they are intrinsically unsafe. So if you have the belief that by just scaling them up, you're going to reach human level intelligence, those systems, and, which I, and I don't believe that's the case, right. I think we're missing essential components for that, but, but if you believe that's the case, those systems will be intrinsically unsafe. Um, and I think at some point we'll abandon them. My, my bet is that within five years, those autoregressive LLMs will disappear because they'll be replaced by things that are more controllable, more steerable, um, you know, better, they can reason, perhaps they can plan, uh, which the, the current systems aren't capable of. So yes, it occupies my, uh, uh, my mind, but, um, but I have a solution. So I'm not worried. Amazing. Well, uh, Yann LeCun, thank you so much for coming to Toronto to be in part of this really important conversation. We really appreciate you accepting our invitation. A real pleasure. Thanks for listening to these conversations that I'm having pre the June 22nd Monk debate with all four of our main stage presenters. Up next is Max Tegmark, who is arguing for the motion, be it resolved, AI research and development poses an existential threat. Max is a world-renowned professor at MIT, where he currently studies physics-based techniques to better understand biological and artificial intelligences. His impressive body of research and best-selling books have really set him apart as one of the leading scientific minds of his generation. You've possibly seen his name in the news. In the last few months, he led with Elon Musk a public call for a moratorium on AI research and development supported by leading researchers and companies working in the field. Again, the next voice you'll hear is mine in conversation with Max Tegmark. Max Tegmark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. You were first into the pool here in Canada. The water's often chilly. Uh, it takes a brave man uh, to dive off the high board, but we've got a bunch of other great thinkers joining you for this important conversation on AI. Thank you. Well, I'm originally from Sweden, so I consider Canada to be warm and balmy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to begin by giving our listeners a, a sense of how you've come around to believe that there is an existential risk associated with the development of artificial intelligence. Was this uh, a moment of insight that came to you? Is this an accumulation of a series of studies or inquiries that you're involved in? Tell us that story. It was always pretty obvious to me that if we ever did build AI that was vastly smarter than us, that we could, could in principle lose control over it and get wiped out. That's not very profound. What gradually really got to me though, and unfortunately surprised me negatively, was that um, we did so little as a species to prevent this and decided to just go full steam in, in kind of the wrong direction. You know, the idea that um, intelligence gives power and that we could lose power to other entities if they're way smarter than us is so old that even Alan Turing himself, you know, one of the founding fathers of AI, wrote in 1951 that, that you know, that's the most likely outcome, that we will gradually lose control. And for that reason, many thinkers have, have been for years and years saying, you know, we need to proceed with caution so that we can actually, despite that, keep control over this tech. Don't connect powerful systems to the internet, don't teach them how to code, don't teach them how to manipulate humans, etc. 
then what's happened more recently is two things. One, it's turned out to be easier than we thought to build AI that can pass the Turing test and get very close to exceeding us. And, and second, the commercial pressures have just thrown all our wisdom out the window. We've already connected these to the internet. Hey, let's build a chatbot. And we've, we've taught AI how to manipulate people by reading, letting them read everything we've written on the internet and figure out how to manipulate us into clicking more on social media. And we've taught GPT-4, for example, to code really, really well. So this idea of self-improving AI feels a lot less uh, abstract now. And there is even a kind of risk denialism I honestly wasn't expecting. When I wrote my book, Life 3.0, some years ago, I have a story in there about how some people take over the world with AI, and they do it in a very sneaky, clandestine way, because I couldn't in my wildest dreams imagine that society would just let companies openly say, you know, we are going to build superhuman AI, and just let, let and sit back and let watch these companies do it. But that's exactly what's happened. And um, I also hadn't in my wildest dreams thought that there would be so much denialism, kind of like in the movie Don't Look Up, where people are like, oh, no, it's going to be fine. You know, we have no idea how these systems work, but we shouldn't worry. We have no idea how soon they're, we're going to get superhuman, but I'm so sure it's far away that we shouldn't worry. And even sort of actively snarky... <laughs> dismissal of people who, who warn about it. I didn't see that coming, honestly. So you're debating the partner tonight. Let's build on that. Yen LeCun has said publicly that, you know, he thinks that the current AI systems have the equivalent of a rat brain. Um, and he does not feel that AGI, um, artificial general intelligence, and certainly some breakout to super intelligence, is anywhere within uh, the scope of a reasonable time frame that we can establish uh, through scientific inquiry, through a sense of the development of the field itself. You feel differently. Why is that? Well, first of all, I, I think Jan LeCun has shortened his timelines a bit, but he should speak for himself. And, uh, you know, rats, I, rats are very cute and very smart, but they cannot translate English into Chinese or <clears throat> take your favorite lullaby and turn it into a sonnet, you know, the way GPT-4 can do rats. <laughs> have not mastered language. There's plenty of ways in which AI systems have, can exceed not just the capabilities of rats today, but of, of humans as well in a lot of domains. And uh, most AI researchers thought even three years ago that mastering language and passing the Turing test was decades away. And turned out they were all wrong because it's already happened, right? Um, I feel that um, we really need to win this race between the growing power of the AI and the growing wisdom with which we manage it. And what's been disappointing to me is that the race has gone poorly for humanity in both ways. The, the power has grown faster than we thought and the wisdom has grown s slower than we thought. That's why I'm one of many who's called for a pause so we can catch up with regulation and things like this. Paint for us a picture, because at the core of this debate is, is the idea of an existential risk. And, you know, it's a big word, but it kind of 
generally encompasses something that either results in the, the end of human civilization or the inability of human civilization to recover mm -hmm. from a setback and return to its previous course or trajectory of development. Do you have a, a feeling of what that existential moment could look like when it comes to AI? Yeah, I think there are three basic ways in which we could get wiped out by AI. The one that's talked about the most, even in science fiction, is rogue AI. So you have an AI system that has a goal that it relentlessly optimizes, which just turns out to not be well aligned with our goals. When we humans have driven other species extinct in the past, it's usually been this. You know, we wanted to make more money, and we, so we chopped down the rainforest. And more as a byproduct, we drove extinct some species that lived there. A second way is malicious use. Even if we figure out how to make AI safe in the sense that it will always obey its owner completely, you know, there are a lot of um, people who actually want to do harm. This might sound very strange to you as a Canadian because <laughs> so, Canadians are so nice, but in the US we have uh, a lot of people who do mass shootings where they literally want to kill as many people as possible. And if you gave someone like that a, a super intelligent AI, and they would probably, many of them, tell it to just kill as many as possible. It can end very badly. So that's not the AI being unaligned. It's the human being unaligned. A third way, which is remarkably little discussed, even though it's kind of the most obvious way, is that we just get outcompeted. Because by definition, superhuman AI is better than us at doing all jobs and other economic activity, right? So companies who choose not to replace their workers by AI will be outcompeted by those who do. And it's not just that you replace the jobs, but also the decision-making. So companies that choose not to have an AI CEO get outcompeted by those who do. Militaries who choose not to have AI generals get outcompeted by militaries that do. Or, or AI missiles. Or AI missiles. And, and governments, uh, countries that choose to not have AI governments get outcompeted by countries that do. And we end up in a future where, although there is a lot of stuff happening, a lot of economic activity, it's not our future anymore because we lost control. And that's the first step to, for a species to go extinct, to lose control. And moreover, we've then also ended up being economically useless because they, by definition, didn't need us for anything. And if we're not needed and not in control, it's pretty obvious that that could end badly. Yeah. That point of agency, I think, is the one that I think the most about is how does this technology potentially displace human agency at an individual level and at a, a societal level if you have powerful, efficient decision-making machines that are optimized and are proving themselves to generate better outcomes, why would you ever make a choice? Yeah. Why would you ever choose A, B, or C? You would just choose the machine. Yeah, and the creepy thing about this is we can already see this beginning to play out in our society, right? Where ever more decisions are delegated from humans to machines. Another argument you're going to hear in this conversation, no doubt, is that we've developed other existential technologies, atomic weapons, uh, biological weapons. Um, we've now got this great thing called CRISPR that can do, you know, genetic sequencing in small labs with minimal amounts of training, people aren't having the same conversations about those technologies that we're having about AI right now. Why is that? 
some people have actually are. Some scientists I know are quite freaked out about both of those, but um, they're not listened to as much. That's, that's certainly true. The basic challenge we face as a species is, is the same. You know, when the power of the tech outpaces the wisdom with which we manage it, things don't go well. I think biologists with their CRISPR and so on have so far been the ones out of the different disciplines that have handled their challenges the best. They decided to get together and ban biological weapons in the 70s. They decided there are some things you could make a lot of money on, like making clones of you. That They just said, that's too risky for our species. We might lose control, so let's not do it. In biology also, companies aren't allowed to just um, and come up with some new medicine and start selling it in supermarkets. You have to first persuade experts at the FDA or the Canadian government equivalent agency that this is safe before you can do it. And I think that's why biotech is really thriving as an industry and people think of it mainly as bringing positive things to the world. Whereas in AI, it's just total wild west right now. Uh, the three, the three could, could, could that change though? Could, uh, you know, because the argument from the industry is like, we're in the early days here, we're committed to safety. A lot of these companies have these safety units or committees or boards, um, and they're saying, look, we're going to get there. Trust us. Uh, we can develop this using a lot of the insights from genetics uh, or uh, these other, you know, technological threats that where, where the threat has been mitigated. That's exactly what biotech companies said in the 50s also, and then there were so many scandals where they nonetheless killed a lot of people with some medicine that turned out to be very dangerous that policymakers says, okay, enough of this self-regulation, we're just creating the FDA, done. And um, <clears throat> tobacco companies, all companies are always going to say, trust us, let us self-regulate. It's also complete nonsense to say these are early days because there are many people who think we'll have superhuman intelligence in two years or maybe even next year. So it's very imminent stuff. We don't have, we can't afford to futz around for 10 more years of the companies doing whatever they want. They're also linked, these different powerful technologies because AI, they can in nine hours do one year worth of research and if someone tasks it with developing a new bioweapon, which is going to kill all humans, you know, it can go figure out how to do that in a way that it would take way, way long for, for, for humans to do. Basically, any other technology that can be discovered, you know, the, the fastest way to discover it is going to be using AI. So if we can't control the AI, we can't control any other tech either. Right. Final question, I'm asking all the debaters, is there one argument on the other side of this debate that you would give the most credence to that would cause you to think about your own assessment of AI as an existential risk? Is it solving for the alignment problem? Is it, um, I guess you're not, you're not too optimistic about self-regulation, but is there a piece of the other side of this debate that you think could be built on to avoid that existential outcome? Good question. Well, my pessimism now is largely because society, I feel, and many researchers have been so flippant and dismissive of the risk. This, I think, is changing, actually, in a really encouraging way. Right? You just recently had this statement with lots of famous researchers calling for a pause, and even more recently, a who's who in AI saying that AI is an 
could cause extinction, not just signed by people like Jeff Hinton and Yoshio Bengio from the academic side, but also from the CEOs, Demis Asabis from Google DeepMind, Sam Altman from OpenAI. And this, I think, is extremely encouraging because for the first time now, I think we're gonna, it's likely we're going to see a lot of uh, the wisdom development happening, on a, which, we, which makes me more hopeful. And I don't want to co come across to you as some sort of gloomer who thinks we're all as lost either. I, the, the reason why I'm so adamant about talking about this is because I think there still is hope to have a really amazing future, not just for our kids, but for all future generations. And with advanced AI that we control, right? AI built by humanity, for humanity. And, and, and the reason I, I'm so motivated to work on this is because I don't want to squander all this upside. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of upside having you as part of this debate. Uh, Max, thank you again so much for coming to Toronto to be part of the conversation. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. You're listening to a series of conversations that I had as your executive director with the debaters appearing at the Monk debate on artificial intelligence. Up next is Melanie Mitchell. She is a full professor at the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, a world-leading research center for complex systems science. Her fields of research include artificial intelligence and cognitive science. You may have caught some of her recent best-selling books. They've been instrumental to me and others trying to understand AI from a, a layperson's perspective. That most recent bestseller of hers is Artificial Intelligence, a Guide for Thinking Humans. She was joining the Monk debate on AI to argue against the motion, be it resolved. AI research and development represents an existential threat. The next voice you'll hear is mine in conversation with Melanie Mitchell. Melanie Mitchell, welcome to the Monk Debates. Oh, well, excited to be here. Thank you for making uh, the trip today to Toronto for this important conversation. Um, so much going on right now in terms of, uh, frankly, a lot of media hype. I think um, a lot of people kind of inundated with news and information about AI trying to sort through what's fact and what's fiction. Um, 
What do you think we're currently missing in the conversation as it's being presented publicly? I think we're missing a lot of the nuances. You know, we, we hear stories about what some of these large AI systems can do, but often they're um, told in a way that doesn't tell the whole story. So recently in the New York Times, we saw a report on um, existential risk, actually, that uh, reported that GPT-4 had hired a human worker to help it solve a CAPTCHA task. Right. It, it said yeah. it was, uh, I guess, visually impaired. It's, and lied to the human worker. That was what was reported. But if you actually dig into what happened, and I did for my, for, 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 um, my substack, uh, it turns out that's not at all what happened. The, the, the GPT-4 was being guided via prompts from a human the humans, uh, the, it couldn't hire anyone. It couldn't access right. the web yeah, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How would that and happen? And the human was doing everything, typing everything in. And the human, you know, said, what if you want to solve a CAPTCHA? How would you do that? And then the, it gave some response. And the human said, what about using a TaskRabbit worker? And so it's, you know, I think these things are being reported in a way that emphasizes the hype and doesn't really tell the real story of how much humans are involved in what AI can do. Where do you think this uh, comes from, Melanie? Is it, uh, you know, just too many decades of science fiction and bad movies? I mean, it, it does seem as if we've kind of jumped to some conclusions here about this technology, about its impact, about just how transformative it is. I think there there's a lot of things going on. Science fiction is part of the, the way that we frame what we expect from AI. But also, I think now we have systems that can communicate with us in natural language and human language. It, it's really hard not to see them as thinking. We humans are just programmed to project uh, intelligence, agency, goals, and whatever it is that we project on other humans, we project it onto these systems, even if it's not really there. Hmm, fascinating. So help our audience understand, because that's a really interesting point, that we're um, imbuing these machines with a lot of human characteristics that you're, maybe demonstrably just aren't there. What are the differences between what we understand uh, or don't or very imperfectly human intelligence versus what machine intelligence is? Because I think we're often conflating the two and we're assuming somehow that we can know what it is and it can know what we are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we humans have bodies. We interact with the world. We interact with each other. We've uh, actively intervened on the world from the time we were babies to try and see how the world works. And so we have a very rich, deep understanding of basic things in the world and basic things about other people that often are not very well expressed in language. Like, you know, they're not on Wikipedia or on the other sites that large language models are trained on. So there's a lot of knowledge about the world that's not language, that's not in language. That's something that humans have experienced. And the language models don't have those kinds of experiences. They don't experience the world. They only are passively trained on language. So I don't think they can have the kind of knowledge that we have. The key part of this debate is the contention that 
AI research and development poses an existential risk. Uh, we purposely did that. It's a high bar, an existential risk. I think you can look at different definitions, but generally it's either the end of human civilization, we know it, or human civilization so degraded and knocked off course that it can never regain its previous kind of trajectory of progress. Um, I sense that you're in some ways in this debate and interested in this debate because you feel that that contention is just wrong. Yeah, I mean, you never know what's going to happen far in the future. So if someone asked me, what's AI going to be like 500 years from now? There's no way I could possibly answer. Imagine 500 years ago, even talking about that kind of thing. But right now, we know that these systems have no agency of their own. They have no desires. They don't want anything. They're machines. They're tools that we use. I think we have to talk about us using technology in harmful ways, and that happens all the time with humans. But talking about an existential risk, something that's going to essentially kill off all of humanity, is such an extreme that we have to be really careful in, in putting forth that scenario because I think that can really be harmful to the way people think about AI and could even you know, wipe out some of its potential benefits for humanity. One of the contentions about why this conversation has emerged is that AI scientists, the community itself, like a lot of different communities, believes that it's doing something pretty exceptional. And you know, exceptionalism sometimes leads to dark places, a view that what you're involved with is so important that it could literally change the fate and future of humanity. Do you think maybe the underlying story under all of this is something very, very human that we're, I don't know, that a certain group of people are imbuing what they're doing with like an essentialism that just isn't frankly warranted. I, I do agree with that. I think that that's something that, you know, people want to believe that their work is impacting the world. And in AI, there's no question AI is impacting the world, but I think some people can take that to such an extreme that they can have, they can believe their own speculations about what might happen too strongly. And um, it's also a great marketing to say that your AI system is powerful enough to destroy humanity. Well, it's certainly helped the stock prices of a lot of these companies over the last uh, the last six months. At the Santa Fe Institute, a big part of what you study is kind of complex systems. Um, people in that field, we can think of uh, Nick Bostrom and others, um, have uh, argued there was a contention that you know complex systems are dangerous, that they are fragile, they have all kinds of unintended consequences that we cannot anticipate or figure out. And in fact, in that context, AI has been singled out as an exemplar alongside atomic weapons or the risk of uh, CRISPR and genetic engineering as something that is another complexity that we're introducing into an already overly complex and fragile and tasked world. Do you would you buy into the sense that AI could potentially have a negative amplifying effect on all the other stressors that are confronting us now, and therefore it could be existential? And the ver you know the, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. I think it could ha it could magnify uh, disinformation, for example, in an already polarized society. 
Uh, I think it can have a lot of harms in magnifying biases and uh, perhaps even disrupting uh, economies. But I don't think any of those rise to the level of existential. And I think it's really important to point that out because we have to be very realistic and understand what the, what the risks are. Uh, the other side of that, the other side of what complex systems tells us is that complex systems are fragile, but they're also resilient. Society, our society, our institutions, our technologies give us kind of these layers of complexity that protect us in some way against any sudden shock. And I don't think for that reason that we're going to see AI as an existential threat. Right. The, the Mayan civilization who goes through repetitive crop failures and their entire way of life basically falls apart as a result of climate change. We've got more robustness, uh, redundancy built into the system. Final question about agency. Some people have argued that one of the existential dangers of AI isn't, you know, some doomsday scenario of robots attacking us, the Terminator movies. It's rather a subtle but relentless loss of human agency that AI systems will simply produce better outcomes. They'll produce better outcomes for corporations, for individuals, for governments, and people will increasingly delegate what would have been human decision-making and human thought and human agency and action to, to a, a machine, a program, uh, a series of zeros and ones, and that as that process accelerates and as those individuals, governments, or corporations that adopt these technologies perform better than the ones that don't, we end up in a world where everything is decided by us, for us, but not by us. I don't believe that scenario will come to pass because, as I said, humans are such a big part of what AI is. And I don't think in any near future that that's going to stop, that AI is going to become capable enough and autonomous enough to replace every, you know, every aspect of what we do in, in the, our work life, in our entertainment, and any other aspect of our lives. So I, I just don't see any evidence for that. It's not going to make us um, extinct, or I mean not extinct physically, but extinct as a creative, self-producing, right. a post-human world. Post, it's not going to be a post-human world. The I singularity is it. not going to happen. Okay, Ray Kurzweil, if you're listening, um, we wish you the best. Uh, final question we're asking all of our presenters uh, today, which is, which argument on the other side would you give the most credence to? If you had to think of the various cases that will be put forward for an existential risk, which one do you worry about? Is it the bad actor who adopts this technology and then uses it to amplify their ability to cause harm? Is it uh, a miscalculation in that uh, AGI, um, average general intelligence, suddenly comes upon us faster than we expected? I think the bad actor scenario is the only plausible one, in my opinion. And we certainly have seen bad actors uh, use technology to do very uh, harmful things. The question is, does AI have some kind of unique and special threat associated with it that isn't 
sort of already in our technologies? Is AI something so new and so powerful that that's going to give humans some new, incredibly, you know, powerful way to to destroy humanity if they want to. And I don't I don't believe it. And it's partially because of this thing we talked about, about the resilience of society, of all the things that sort of all the layers of complexity such a thing would have to get through. Yeah, I often think of like CRISPR and genetic engineering. That's a similarly, you know, increasingly distributed technology that in could do really, really bad things if people knew how to use it and now smaller and smaller groups and labs with less and less sophistication can access that technology. But we've found ways seemingly up to now to regulate it and to take an approach towards that technology, which hasn't turned it into the threat that many people thought it was when it first emerged. Would you agree with that? Analysis? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think we will do the same with AI. I'm very optimistic about our government's uh, trying to regulate AI and now thinking very deeply about what are the best ways to do that. And corporations themselves um, actively advocating for regulation, which is kind of interesting. Advocating and uh, Advocating for it, but sometimes uh, on the other side, lobbying against it. That's always true. Well, Melanie Mitchell, thank you so much for coming to the Monk Debates. We really appreciate your analysis and insights, and it's just terrific to have you as part of the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to these conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers on AI. They were conducted by me, your executive director, Rudyard Griffiths, just before the June 22nd Monk debate on AI. Our final speaker in this four-part series that we're providing you is Joshua Bengio. Uh, he is considered one of the world's leading experts in artificial intelligence, known for his pioneering work on deep learning. Like Yann LeCun, he has won the prestigious Turing Award for his contributions to computer science. He's a full professor at the University de Montréal, the founder of a scientific director of MILA, Quebec's AI Institute, and a driving force behind the Montreal declaration for the responsible development of artificial intelligence. He was appearing at the debate to argue in favor of the motion via resolved AI research and development represents an existential threat. The next voice is mine in conversation with Yasha Bengio. Yashua Bengio, welcome to the Monk Debates. Thanks for having me. Well, again, great to have a Canadian on stage uh, here with uh, our international panel. We really appreciate you making the trip uh, from Montreal. Let me begin with um, challenging you to explain to our listeners the one thing that you think that they should be taking away from this debate. What is the, the insight to help them understand the existential dangers, the existential risks of AI? The, the danger is that once we have technology that is easily accessible by a lot of people and that is very powerful, AIs that would be smarter than us, something that many experts, including Jan Lecun and Jeff Hinton and I, think could come in just a few years, once we have that, um, it's almost certain that there will be people with malicious intentions or misguided understanding of AI that will intentionally or not instruct those machines in ways that could yield to um, uh, major catastrophes. That, that's the most important thing. And then 
that the subtleties of how these scenarios can unroll, there, there are many possibilities that, that people can agree or disagree on. But the main thing is we bring very uh, powerful entities into this world that um, could be misused or that we could lose control of is uh, something that could be very dangerous for humanity. People in your own field are pushing back against the proposition that, in fact, there is even an ability to approximate um, AGI, a kind of a human general intelligence. They're saying that this stuff uh, could still be decades in the future. What makes you less sanguine about the extent to which this technology is accelerating and that the potential for SGI and possibly you know, a kind of superintelligence breakthrough uh, soon after is more something part of the near future than the distant? Well, I don't really know when it's going to happen. And even if it was 20 years into the future, I would be worried because it, it's going to take time. Think about how many decades we've needed to do not much against climate change. So either way, whether it's three years or 30 years, I think we need to start working on it. Now, I changed my mind about the danger of um, superhuman AI because of the recent advances, which actually were not even scientific advances. They were just due to scaling up computing and data size. And also because of the work that I know is going on around the world um, to bridge the gap. In other words, the current systems indeed, um, I think lack some ingredients, which I call system two, and lots of people working on this. It could be just a few years before we find the, the missing ingredients, or maybe it's going to be decades. But can we take a chance? A, a layperson, I think, is often, myself included, sometimes confused to think through why would AI systems want to harm us? I mean, they don't have intentionality like we do. It's not like, I don't like the way you looked at me across a bar, so I'm going to come over and you know sort you out. What, how do we get to that? How do we even get to that point? It just seems kind of incomprehensible. Yeah, it's complicated. And, and this is called the alignment problem. What happens is that for almost any goal that an entity, an agent would have, um, a very useful sub-goal is self-preservation. If you want to achieve anything, you need to survive till then. And once you have self-preservation as a goal, you might have other goals like, well, in order to survive and in order to achieve my goal, I need to control my environment. So it means the eye needs to control us, needs maybe to please us, to fool us in order to achieve whatever we thought we asked it to do. Also, there's a lot of evidence from starting from economics, um, recent Nobel Prize, and uh, more than a decade of work in reinforcement learning and, and AI safety, suggesting that it's very hard to, um, to, to ask the machine to do what we intend. We, we can write something, but it, there's going to be a mismatch, and, and that mismatch can be amplified, can, can, can lead to self-preservation and to lead to actions that maybe the AI doesn't realize is really bad for us. Um, so there are lots of scenarios that we don't fully understand. So what I'm saying is let's not ignore those possibilities. Let's not deny those possibilities. Let's, let's make sure we study them and invest to protect ourselves. Do you think you can do that if you have a machine that is getting smarter and as Jeffrey Hinson and you and others have explained that once one machine learns something, all the machines learn that instantaneously. It's not like humans who have to write books or deliver lectures or appear at debates to, 
share with each other in a slow, messy, you know, biological way. What is the, what's the potential here, the risk that somehow this technology is emergent, that it is self-improving? Do you, is that, is that what you see right now? Or is that, again, a, a, a known unknown that it could exist in a, in a nearer-term future? I do not think that the current state-of-the-art, like GPT-4, is dangerous by itself, that it, you know, it would become sentient or something like this, um, which is a term that is not well-defined anyways. But what I believe is that once we figure out the principles that give us our main cognitive abilities, and maybe we're not far from that, the computers, because they're digital and just as Jeff Hinton argued, will have an extra advantage that they can learn faster because many computers can share information at the rate we can't and things like that and access to memory and, and so on. Uh, for example, being able to read the whole internet very quickly, which obviously we can't. So it's almost sure, I mean, your brain is, is a machine. It's a biological machine. It's almost sure we'll get there and once we get there, there will be machines that are smarter than us. You know, we, um, we anthropomorphize a lot of this conversation. So we, we call it AI, artificial intelligence, and we assume that intelligence is human intelligence. What are we getting wrong there, and what could machine intelligence actually look like? I've struggled with this. Some people have said that it could be incredibly alien to us very incomprehensible, very unknowable. What's your sense of what machine intelligence could look actually look like? I agree. Um, I, I, I think it's very likely that the forms of intelligences that we will be building will be quite different from human intelligence. Evolution has put all sorts of mechanisms in us that work well for humanity. And it's actually hard for us to decipher all of them and put that into machines. And so it's very likely that as we make progress on the more kind of intellectual abilities, but not necessarily all of the uh, uh, guardrails that evolution has put, has put in us, uh, we will build uh, systems that think differently from us. And, and that's a danger because it will be hard for us to predict how these systems will uh, think, how they will like potentially see us and, and you know, what kind of decisions they will take that we will not anticipate and so on. Yeah, so this is a really interesting point. What you're saying is the alignment problem is much bigger than just, you know, I've set up an AI with a goal to get you to click on this website as much as possible. You're saying that the alignment problem could be so big it actually gets to the the essence of the intelligence that we're creating. And historically, intelligence has equaled power that we've seen in the relationship of, of species on this planet or different groups of human beings at different levels of uh, civilizational development. There's this correlation between intelligence and raw power. Yes. And that is something, personally, I feel like I should have been paying more attention to and it's really only in the last few months that I've been thinking through this because of GPT-4 and ChatGPT. 
we the reason we're building AI is because we are, we are seeking power and we are building tools to give us power. But now we're building these tools that may have more power than us. And in a way, it's very different from all previous technologies. All previous technologies were by construction subservient to humanity. They couldn't think by themselves. But, but now we're building machines that, that are thinking and we're seeing like, the very early forms of that now. So just to explain that, when you say the machines are thinking, what what do you see? Or what I know it's hard because you're deep into, you know, maths here and other things, which we're not going to be able to communicate in the context of a podcast. But what what is it that makes you, you know, use the word thinking? Well, they are the way that they are thinking. The current ones. The way that they're thinking that um, is analogous to how we think is like our intuition. So what they're missing is the form of thinking where we deliberate in our mind, where we think through before we act. So it's like we have these very impulsive machines that can blurt out things that, you know, generally are pretty good and sometimes completely wrong. Whereas humans, especially, you know, if, if they, they have developed that skill, can look at their own thoughts and realize, well, maybe I should qualify this. I'm, I'm not really sure, for example. Or maybe it's not the right context to say this. So the, the, the current ones think in this very immediate input to output kind of way that probably uh, many animals do as well. They're, they're missing a lot of things. They don't have a body. They, they can't control their body and things like that. But they can perceive with images and they can imagine things. They can generate images. They can generate text. Um, they can understand a lot of aspects of our world. But they're still missing the, some of the aspects that we have of, of thinking, of reasoning, of planning and things like that. Is it that we say that they're thinking because what they're producing is what we would consider the product of thought? I know I'm getting a bit philosophical here, but I'm just trying to understand like whether they actually computationally mapping neural networks or whatever the analogy one uses to try to wrap your head around this, are they actually doing something themselves or are they simply producing results that we understand as biological sentience are the product of thought, but we don't actually know that there is thought incurring inside of them. Well, I don't know if thought is occurring inside of you. <laughs> that is a question so that's been asked before. <laughs> uh, I think the objective truth is they, they can solve all, all kinds of puzzles that we would think require thinking, including ones that they haven't been trained on, of course, if you train them on something like playing Go or chess, then you know, they get superhuman. Now, they also can do badly on some of those things. And, and it, it, the people who are studying this can see signs of you know, what is lacking and the, the sort of thing I've been working on. But, but I can also see all the things that they're doing well, which makes me think that part of the equation you know, we've, we've figured out. So it's kind of like the proof is in the pudding. Well, that's the only objective uh, thing we can say, really. Now, it turns out I've been working on understanding human consciousness and the neural mechanisms of that 
Um, and there are some theories, including some that we worked on, that suggest that our sense of um, subjective experience that we that is the central ingredient of consciousness may not be as magical as we tend to think. Um, and we have a very strong sense that is something special, right? But it might just be a side effect of uh, a particular form of computation that is useful for thinking, in fact, for the, the more like uh, reasoned thinking. Right, yeah, we've had uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett uh, on this podcast, a neurologist who's talked a lot about just that. The, we're looking for lions in the bushes and we're, we're kind of good at that, uh, again, for reasons of evolutionary biology. Let me just end on a question that I've asked all of our presenters this evening. What is the, the one argument on the other side of this debate that you would give the most credence to? Um, is it that you do think that there could be a path towards uh, regulation that could head off this risk? Is it that um, our own sense of self-preservation is it some is it already maybe in this debate the very fact that we're having this debate it's asserting itself this has now become a big issue heads of state are meeting with heads of companies heads of companies of these big powerful new emerging companies like OpenAI are talking about the existential risk of the very technologies that they're developing well I'm trying to be neither an optimist or a pessimist here but I really believe that there's, there's nothing that's completely desperate, that in any situation, there's something we can do to obtain you know, more favorable outcomes. So think about the climate activists. They could be really discouraged. And you know, we should have been acting 20 years ago or more. But we keep going and trying to do our best to reduce the damage. In the case of existential risk or other you know, large-scale harms that could happen with AI, we can reduce the probability of, of uh, bad outcomes, and, and regulation is, is a huge part of that. So we need to move quickly. We need to invest in... Um, the the research like we need to understand better what are the possibly bad scenarios so that we can create the countermeasures to minimize those risks and do you think we'll do that i mean if you think of climate change um boy we're failing that test i have to try my best and that's why i'm having this debate well, we appreciate your time, your attention, uh, lending your knowledge and expertise to this conversation. So, Joshua, thank you so much for coming to Toronto for the Monk Debate on AI. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to these series of four conversations with four of the world's leading thinkers on AI, all of whom appeared at the Monk Debate on AI that took place in Toronto on June 22nd. To access that debate, please visit the Monk Debate website, www.monkdebates.com. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations. I know I enjoyed interviewing each of these four remarkable thinkers on AI. We'll do this all again soon. Bye-bye.